Again, to trust in Jesus. That is really a good theme for Psalm 25, our passage for this morning. If you'd like to turn there in your Bibles to Psalm 25, I want to remind you a little bit about this psalm. It's a little different in the way it is written than many of our other psalms. In fact, it's the first one in the book of Psalms that has a specific artistic structure called an abecedarius. That is an alphabetic acrostic. Each verse begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, a different letter, in succession, A, B, C, or Aleph, Beth, Gimel in Hebrew. And there are other psalms like this, particularly Psalm 119, which the men are studying in their Bible study. It is actually an intensive acrostic, which means that each section of eight verses in that psalm begins with the letter of that section, A, B, C, etc., And the book of Lamentations has this type of structure in four of its five chapters, chapter three being perhaps the most intensive with three verses starting with each successive letter. So why am I telling you all this? What difference does it make? You probably can't even see that in your English translation of the Bible. It's because Psalm 25 is a work of beauty, but it's also a reflection, a complete sense of what it is to be and to have the faith and life of a believer in the Lord. Follow along as I read this structured and yet beautiful psalm written by David, perhaps at the end of his life, reflecting back on what it's like to be a believer. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt. For it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me, and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. We consider these words of God's grace and his truth. Let us bow briefly in prayer. 
Father, may these words of the psalmist of David, inspired by your Holy Spirit and thus your word, which lasts forever, may they impact us with a great impact by the power of your Spirit. Lord, give us ears to hear it and hearts to understand it, that we might apply it to our lives. And Father, I pray that any words or thoughts or actions or details that are not consistent with your word this morning might pass away and never be heard from again. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I think about this passage and I think about David, in my mind, writing these words, we don't really know the occasion or the circumstances, but in my mind, it appears to be writing as an older man. I think of visiting in January 2010 my father for what I knew would be the last time. It was emotional. It was difficult as my father lay in his bed suffering from the disease which would take him. And as I sat by his bed, it was a reminder that from this time forth I could no longer turn to him for advice or wisdom, particularly in his 40 years of pastoral experience particularly as a father who has sought to walk in the ways of the Lord. And as I sat beside him for the last time, I recognized that though he could perhaps not spend a lot of time talking to me, yet he knew too that this was the last time we would see each other on this earth. My nephew the oldest grandchild whom we had brought with us from college in Tennessee across the state to St. Louis, was the last from our group to leave my father's bedside. To this day, I don't know what my dad said to him. I don't know what the details were. By grace and only by grace, God has allowed me to blunder down his path, sometimes wandering, sometimes wondering where the directions should lead me, but I wonder about my nephew. He had that advice, that relationship with his grandfather, that in our group, he had the last words. But where is he now? You see, when we trust in the Lord, it's not a static life. It's a life in which we seek to go down the paths that God directs, not our own paths. And by God's grace, we see many things about the believer in this passage. The interesting thing about this type of psalm, again, because of the type and structure it is, it is you can't really go verse by verse and say, this is the theme here and the theme here and the theme here. It's interwoven throughout the psalm and repeated in different ways. But I think there are four points I'd like to make this morning from this psalm about the believer. David says the believer is filled with confident expectation. Secondly, the believer is instructed in the Lord's ways. Third, the believer is reliant upon the Lord's mercy. And finally, the believer is patiently awaiting deliverance. I look at this passage, perhaps it's erroneously, I don't know the circumstances by which David wrote it. I almost consider it as he's laying there perhaps by Abishag on his deathbed and he's thinking back upon his life and his life walking with the Lord, of course, obviously, at times, straying from the path, perhaps particularly in his youth. And he looks back and he says this, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. You see, 
Charles Spurgeon describes prayer this way. He says that prayer is like this. Our soul rising from earth to have fellowship with heaven. Here he says, his soul is lifted up. In this case, in prayer to say this. Oh my God, in you I trust. You see, this hope that David has is not resting upon himself, is not resting upon his character, his actions, his energies. His trust is not in things of this world. His trust is in, as he describes it, my God. Not just an ethereal God that we cannot approach, not someone who does not describe himself or reveal his character to us, not someone who is separated from the world and does not act and interact with it, but in the God who is personal and has intervened in David's life time and time again so that David can say, Oh my God, in you I trust. And notice what else it describes in his faith. It says, indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. And then the last, or one of the last verses, verse 21, says this, May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. The one who trusts and has this confident expectation that God will redeem him, God will act on his behalf, is the one who waits for the Lord. I don't know about you, but I'm an American. I don't like to wait for anything. You know, I, I don't like to wait in line. I don't like to wait for my credit card that expires in a couple days so I can use it in Latvia. I don't want to wait for anything. But here, David says, the one who is trusting in God is the one who waits for him waits for him to act, waits for him to reveal himself, waits for him to train us and lead us in the correct path. This is what hope is. Hope is not impatient. It is not saying, I want it right now. It is an eager expectation. That is the Greek word in the New Testament for hope in the Bible. It is not an ethereal hope where we say, I just think it might possibly be true and therefore I'm going to hope that way. It is an eager and confident expectation that God will act and redeem as he has said he would do. And in that sense then, he takes refuge in the Lord. That's verse 20. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. We're going to have some storms in life. In 2010, one of those storms was my father dying. My wife can tell you it affected me much more than I ever thought it would. I thought I was prepared, but I think that year was a tough one, not only for that, but for other reasons. But because of this refuge in the Lord, there's also this other theme. You see, one of the other things about this passage is there's a chiastic structure Literarily, that means that it is like an X in a way. There's a beginning and an end that has the same point that's being made, and then sometimes in a chiastic structure, it emphasizes what goes on in the middle. But that beginning and end theme, you might have noticed, besides the theme of trust and waiting for God, is this, the theme of shame. 
David says, none who waits for you shall be put to shame. In verse 2, he said, and ask God in prayer, let me not be put to shame, let not my enemies exalt over me. And then at the end, we just read that verse, let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. And he had said, oh, guard my soul and deliver me. See, there's two ways that he is describing shame here. One is the shame that occurs when someone has victory over his enemies, and in this case, Likely, those who would rejoice over him because he has wandered from his paths or has lost in battle. But by the end of the psalm, you realize that it's not so much the shame of just losing a battle. It's the shame of a lack of integrity. May integrity and uprightness preserve me. For I wait for you. Guard my soul and deliver me, verse 20. Notice this, he doesn't say, deliver me from my enemies here. I think what he's saying here is, deliver me from my own tendency to wander. You know the, the hymn that has those words, we are prone to wander, aren't we? This is shame by moral failure. He says, keep me from this shame. When I look at my career as a pastor and my calling, I think of so many of my brothers in Christ who have fallen. You might be shocked to know that just in my 20 years as a pastor, I've had one fellow pastor who has fallen into decadent, a decadent homosexual lifestyle, another friend who has been arrested for soliciting prostitution, Another who has been charged with heresy, yet exonerated. And the list goes on. I have some friends from seminary, I don't even know what happened to them. They kind of fell off the face of the earth. I've never been able to get into contact with them. Some have left the ministry because of their failure, obviously. Apart from God's grace, I would be just like them. Verses 20 and 21 again say this, O guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Now some will translate this passage or interpret integrity and uprightness to be like messengers that are coming to preserve David, but I think it's really this. Lord, work these things in me that I might not fall. My hope And my confident, eager expectation is not in myself and my integrity, is not in my ability to be upright and straight, is not in my ability to get all the scriptures right and to be able to follow them to the T. My hope is in the Lord. I wait for him even to sanctify me through and through. Thus the believer is instructed and seeks instruction in the Lord's ways. This is a theme that appears throughout it. In fact, the verses 4 and 5, four different times, he says, teach me, instruct me, let me know your ways, teach me your paths. It's repeated over and over again. It's again instructed here in verse 8, God instructs sinners in the way. Verse 9, he teaches the humble his way. It goes on and on talking about God's way, God's path, God's direction, God's behavior or manner. First of all, the believer prays for this instruction. He wants it. He wants to know what God wants him to do in life. He also seeks the truth 
of the Lord. Verse 5 says this, lead me in your truth and teach me. Jesus himself said, the truth shall set you free. And of course, it's not just that we get the truth, but that we walk in the truth. You see, as he does this, he recognizes God is the God of his salvation. Verse 5, lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. He recognizes God is his Savior. What does he recognize with that? First of all, he, he recognizes the truth about himself, that he cannot redeem himself, and the truth about God, that apart from God there is no salvation. His trust is not in his method of redeeming himself or his ability to gain favor with God. His trust is in the God who saves him despite himself because he knows He's a sinner needing instruction. Verse 8, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. David knows he's a sinner. Of course, if you read Psalm 32, Psalm 51, you read the account of David being confronted by Nathan about his sin of adultery and murder, you know that David is well aware of his sins. And he's well aware that even when he comes to a realization of his sins and that he is a sinner, that he still needs instruction by God. And so the believer, as he prays for the instruction, as he seeks the truth of the Lord, he humbly submits to the Lord's teaching. Notice what it says in verse 9. God leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. You see, the problem is, We're not naturally humble, are we? Of course, if I was right in some parts of the country, I would say humble. After all, we are naturally prideful and arrogant. We think we're right, and we think our way is the right way. In fact, if we discuss this in our marriage, what is the most common thing that we're thinking? I'm right, and you're wrong. And then we think, well, maybe I need to say that I'm wrong, even though I don't really believe that I'm wrong, in order to get my way. Again, it's all about us. And, of course, the child-parent relationship, isn't that much the same way? The child thinks that he's right, the parent thinks that they're right, and sometimes they're both wrong, but they're stubborn. So we are before the Heavenly Father. We are so stubborn. And yet God's loyalty throughout, you might have noticed here that he's recognizing in all of this, verse 10, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. You see, as the the humble submits to the Lord's teaching, he first recognizes the Lord's covenant loyalty to him. This word steadfast love is the word for mercy, love, kindness in different places, but it's that covenant faithfulness of God to his people. And here he is recognizing that this faithfulness of God is his hope and the direction by which he wants to go. And then the other side of that coin is the covenant maker wants us to be covenant keepers. He says, for those who, lo- who keep his covenant and his testimonies. In other words, 
the humble desire is to be covenantally loyal. You see, it's interesting, these words for covenant. Covenant is that great promise of God who promised to David that he would have someone on his throne, a a descendant upon his throne forever, the one who came and said that he would love Israel always, the one who promised a redeemer to come in the line of David. But he's also the one who continuously tells his people, keep my covenant. This word for testimonies is the word reminders, particularly the negative things of the covenant, all the curses and all those things. He keeps the covenant and the reminders because the believer wants to be instructed in the Lord's ways. This last week, it was a little chilly here for Myrtle Beach. I got out my winter coat because it was cold. First time I got out the coat all year. And there was something hard in the pocket up in in my coat, and I unzipped that pocket that I didn't even know I ever used, and I reached in there and I got out a map of downtown Riga. It's where I'm going this week. Since I've always done a lot of walking in my four trips to that city, this map was important to me. It was all folded up and everything, and every time I go, I get myself a map because sometimes I'm prone to wander, literally. And I find myself referring to my map. Tell any of my family who's been with me, all but Xander, he's the only one that hasn't gone, And they will tell you that there are times I get turned around and they say, are we going in the right direction? I'll get out my map and I'll try to figure it out. Sometimes I get us on the right path and sometimes I don't. But the point is this. God has the map of his instruction by his spirit teaching us. And when it tells us in this psalm that we desire to be led in the paths of the Lord, this is not just a road like a street in the city. This is the the manner and behavior of how we shall live before him so that our way will not get lost. He is the great shepherd. He will lead us to the paths with fertile valleys and with wonderful springs of water. He is the one who will show us his ways. Why? Because he is also merciful. Perhaps you have recognized this theme. You see, the believer is reliant upon the Lord's mercy as well. David knows this very clearly. He says this, verse 6, Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Again, here are these things, mercies. And steadfast love, this covenant faithfulness or loyalty, it's interesting, both of these words are plural in the Hebrew. In other words, remember your acts of mercy or your mercies. Remember your acts of steadfast love or your steadfast lovingnesses, however you want to say that. He knows the eternal mercy and hesed or steadfast love of the Lord. And because he knows that, He asked the Lord, please don't remember my past. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. You know, a lot of people now, when they talk about those things, they just kind of laugh about them like, oh yeah, that was when I was younger, it's not a big deal. David doesn't say that. He says these things were a big deal. They kept me from you. They alienated me from you. 
they were very serious before you. David says in another place, before you, you only have I sinned. Now he's not saying he didn't sin against Bathsheba and her husband, or he didn't sin against others in Israel. What he's saying here is, all my sin is a direct affront with the relationship I should have with God. Remember not those things. Why? Because they separate him. They, they cause him consternation. He, they alienate him from God, whether they're sins of his youth or sins of the present. He says, according to your steadfast love, don't remember my past, but do remember me. He asked the Lord to remember him. Isn't this what we want, for God to remember us and not to forget us? He knows, on the one hand, that the mercy of God is eternal, but he also knows that the mercy of God is present. Verse 11 says, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Here's the guy looking on his past, if it really is David as an older man, then he's thinking about all those things he did in the past, the way he treated others, the way he committed sins of lust and sins of violence. And he thinks that those things could keep him from a right relationship with God. But then when he looks at himself in the present, when we look at the older David, we think, well, he wasn't so bad, was he? You know, the older you get, the more sinful you realize you are if you're in the Lord. He says, my sin is great. But then verse 12 goes into this. Who is the man who fears the Lord? You see, it's also written in the Psalms that because the Lord is a forgiving God, because he forgives, he is to be feared. That's Psalm 130, verse 4. When you recognize your great sin, you come to the Lord in fear because you understand that this sin has separated you from God, and yet you understand God is the one being in the universe who can actually do something about your sin. He can take your sin, put it on his son Jesus on the cross, and forgive you of that sin. So the person who knows the present grace of the Lord also fears the Lord, and then what does he do? That sin being removed, that great sin from the past and the present, as we understand what God has done, that sin is taken away with so that he can once again enjoy intimacy with God. Verse 14 says, or verse, begin verse 13, his soul shall abide in well-being. His offspring shall inherit the land. And then verse 14, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. You see, this intimacy of the Lord is so wonderful. Hear these terms. Scripture describes Abraham as the friend of God. In Deuteronomy 34, verse 10, it says that the Lord knew Moses face to face. Scripture describes David as a man after God's own heart. With each of these individuals, Abraham, Moses, David, what did God do in his relationship with them? One of the things that he did with Abraham is he said, how can I hold back from Abraham what I am about to do? He revealed to him something he was going to do in history. 
And of course, we knew what he did with, with Moses. Moses was the one individual who time and time again could enter the very presence of God to receive his law. And God shined his powerful light upon him to such an extent that Moses had to wear a veil before the people. And we know David was given this great promise that David himself recognizes he did not deserve that there would be a savior that would come from his line. You see, when we understand when God, what God has done in forgiving our sins, then we understand that that forgiveness allows him then to have a relationship with us that he could not have before. And that relationship, the Holy Spirit reveals to us many secrets of God's counsel. This is the friendship here. It actually means the secret counsel of God or a secret conversation. It doesn't mean that we're getting some Gnostic teaching of something deeper and deeper that other people can't have access to. It means that the Holy Spirit is giving us understanding and wisdom from the word so that we can be drawn closer and closer to him in intimacy. You see, we long for intimacy with Christ and it's only possible when our sins are forgiven. Then we understand that in times of great distress, notice these words, I'm lonely, I'm afflicted, my heart is enlarged with my troubles, bring me out of my distresses, consider my affliction, my trouble, all those things. The believer is awaiting deliverance because he knows who God is. He knows that he's the God who forgives his sins and he trusts God then to do what? Verse 21, may integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. And then we go through all that psalm with all of those details in all of that literary structure to really focus on the completeness of these points and to focus on how these things are definitely true. Then we come to the last verse, which is different than all the others. It breaks the alphabetic acrostic, and it says with a verse that seems to be attached at the end to get our attention, redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. In other words, it's not just about me. It's about all your people, Lord. When Saul was sent to Damascus to persecute believers, he was seeking to find any, as it says in Acts 9, who belonged to the way. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. You see, being a believer is not just someone who believes something or feels something. It's not emotional or intellectual alone. We are told to bear fruit in keeping with repentance and to bear the fruit of obedience. As new creatures in Christ, there is a new creature now following a new life as a disciple of Jesus. So much so that God even put a curse on the people that we read earlier this morning that if we even lead a blind man in the wrong way, we are cursed. Our way is the Redeemer's way. Our way is the merciful Christ who died for us way. Our way is what John said in the New Testament reading, that we would lay down our life for our friends. 
You see, this is a new way. Why? Because our sin is forgiven. We are rightly restored to an intimate relationship with God. He teaches us his way, sanctifying us and changing us. Is this your way? Are you still bumbling down your ways of despair, of destruction, of pride and arrogance? Our way as believers is guarded by the Holy Spirit at work within us through his word. Let us close with this prayer. O God, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. In Jesus' name.